Today's scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 11 to 23. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, it's good to see everybody here. Uh, happy Memorial Day. Um, you get to enjoy your last uh, weekend before kids go off to school and the fall comes in. <clears throat> um, we've been looking at this subject of what we call hope. And um, we spent the past, I think, two weeks looking at hope. And I'm going to wrap it up today on the hope. But I just want to say, um, I, I wanted to save this for later when a, attendance was a little bit better, because that, that's how important I think it is. So uh, I think we'll probably revisit this a little bit. Some of this I wanted to save for Easter. Uh, I think uh, that would have been a, an appropriate message. But uh, nevertheless, we're going to wrap it up here a little bit, and there's just so much to say. I hope what you get out of the past couple of weeks, if you, don't, if you weren't here, um, if you listen to it online, uh, how important this idea of, of hope is for us, uh, not just as individuals, but as the church and as a community, uh, also as a country. And uh, it's something that not just Christians, but also non-Christians uh, are looking for in, in some real and substantial way. Let me just kind of briefly summarize what we're looking at here when we talk about hope. The first sermon was this. One, we talked about what it is. Hope is not wishful thinking, but it's more of a certainty and a promise. It's an expectation uh, and a faith and an expectation. Hope is not immediate hope. It's not about immediate circumstances, but Christian hope is about a future hope. It's an ultimate hope. That's what we talk about when we talk about Christian hope. Uh, the second message we looked at was this, why we need it, why the world needs it, why, why you and I need it. And, and many of the obvious reasons is this, because there are things in this world, things in our lives that are difficult, that are very hard. And uh, we are looking for encouragement. We are looking for perseverance. We're looking for the reason why, right? And then we also talked about how we get this hope. And what we said is we get it by faith. We trust 
in the promises of Christ because of what he's done. Not because of what I can do, but what he's done. A promise that he saves. A promise we trust that he makes all things work for the good of those who love him. The promise that he will be with you from now until the end of the age. The promise that he will make every right wrong. That there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. That he will wipe away every tear and that death shall be no more. That faith takes what is promised to us ultimately and wants to make it real for us immediately. And what I want to do is to kind of flesh this out a little bit today and, and kind of see how, how this Christian hope ought to affect us today, okay? How this Christian hope, something that's ultimate, something that's not yet, how that ought to impact us in our lives today practically. Because I, if, you're, if you're someone who likes to be more practical, you're more down to earth with things that you deal with now, you might be wondering, well, how does Christian hope help me today? Right now, in this situation, how does Christian hope, how is it helpful if it's so in the future? How is Christian hope helpful if it's so spiritual, it seems disconnected from reality? How does Christian hope me now, here in this world, when it just sounds so otherworldly? Right? That's what we're going to look at. Even in our passage here, as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, it's very otherworldly. It's very spiritual. Look at verses 21 to 23. He talks about Jesus, who's far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, every name, uh, not only this age, but also the age to come, verse 21. He, in verse 22, he talks about putting everything under his feet, head over everything. Verse 23, his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. This is a big picture uh, of what God is. This is what a big picture of what Jesus promised. Uh, and it sounds big, but it sounds far away. It sounds otherworldly. It sounds spiritual. How is that helpful? It sounds nice, but it sounds so far removed from me that it doesn't seem to be helpful for me today at all. Let me uh, try and illustrate, uh, I think, one way you could do. <clears throat> I think in the early 40s and 50s, do you know a guy named Howard Thurman? Howard Thurman, African-American man, wrote a book called The Negro Spiritual Speaks of Life and Death. Howard Thurman was a civil rights activist overlapped with Martin Luther King Jr. Now, I want you to imagine this. Imagine being a slave in the 19th century in this country, here in the States. And you want to talk about problems, right? If you are a slave, you want to talk about hopelessness. You've got some problems, right? You've got lifelong problems. Do you know what the slaves did uh, to get through this time? Do you know what they did? Many of them, they sang. They sang. They sang songs. They were people of faith, and they sang. They sang their faith. And out of that uh, period came a musical genre, which we now know as Negro spirituals. If you ever look at one of these spirituals today, and you read the lyrics, it was all very spiritual. All talk about angels and heaven and harps and lyres. And the criticism of these spirituals, not just back then, but even now, the criticism is thrown against them, that Negro spirituals were just too otherworldly. They didn't really help the slaves. It, made them, it didn't make them deal with the reality of their present suffering because their head was too high in the sky, right? It, it wasn't practical enough. And so there was a lot of criticism. They could have done more to get out of their present situation. Howard Thurman writes in his book, he says this, quote, 
What greater tribute could be paid to religious faith in general was this. These spirituals he's talking about, it taught people how to ride high to life, to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned hope that the environment with all its cruelty could not crush, end quote. He says this, they sung their faith and it enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. Thurman comes on and he says, the conviction grew that this is the kind of world that we live. It cannot deny the demands of love and longing. God would make it right, either now or later. God was not through with them, and this hope shaped and impacted them in their present. What he's saying, Thurman is saying this, that this Christian hope deepened their capacity for endurance, even in their singing. All wrongs made right. And out of the teachings of future hope, conviction grew that this world that they live in cannot deny love and longing. It taught people how to ride high to life. You see, the problem with the United States today, and even in our culture today, is that we're always freaked out about everything when everything goes wrong. And the argument is maybe, possibly, it's because of a lack of hope, a lack of understanding of hope. And this is why it's so important. This is why, as Paul writes to this church in Ephesus, this is why he says in verse 18, he prays for them, that their eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Why? So that you may know what is the hope that he has called you. Now, it's interesting here in this passage because Paul is talking to a church, not non-Christians, to Christians. And he's saying, I hope your, uh, the eyes of your heart are enlightened. And you have to ask, but, but aren't they already familiar with Christian hope? Aren't their heart, isn't their heart already enlightened? Why is he praying that their eyes would be enlightened to this hope? And I think what he means is this. <clears throat> it's not enough just to know in your head what Christian hope is, but it's with your heart. And when the Bible says heart, he's talking about your mind, your will, your spirit. He's talking, when he says heart, he's talking about knowing something that is the center of your perception, how you perceive, how you make decisions. Heart is not more just about theological concepts and understanding, but it's deeper into your thinking so that the way you see things changes or restructures your will and your life. That's why Paul prays that his readers might be able to know, to understand the hope that lies ahead of them in this fuller sense. So this whole passage, he gives us future hope. Verse 11, he says, we've got this inheritance. Verse 12, he says, we are the first to hope in Christ. Verse 18, we were called to hope, the riches of his glorious inheritance the greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of Christ. Let me give you the definition of, again, practical definition. Biblical Christian hope is a life-changing or life-shaping certainty about the future. Living now in a way that's different because of what you trust will happen in the future. Something that is not here yet, but it affects you right now. And what we've been saying in the past couple of weeks is this, that what you really believe about the future will eventually affect the way you think about the way you live in the present. Let me, let me try to illustrate this one more time. I'm going to give you two juniors. Okay? The first junior 
is a junior by the name of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Do you know who that is? I, I, I had to look it up. I, I did some research on this. Did you know in Virginia, in the state of Virginia, in 1927, they passed a law called the Virginia Sterilization Act? It lasted until 1979. Do you know, do you ever hear that is? It was the act passed by the Supreme Court of the United States that legalized sterilizing women against their will. From 1927 to 1979, Carry Buck versus the court, and they passed. Supreme Court voted for it, eight to one. When they asked, when they were asked, well, is that right? Sterilizing women against their will? Why would you do that? It's called eugenics. Okay, look it up. But he said, why would you do that? And the response by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., one of the Supreme Court justices, says this: Why not? And the response to him was, well, what about human dignity? What about human life and the sacredness of life and choice? What about justice? This would never fly in today's culture, right? This is what all over in the home says, quote, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or to a grain of sand. The idea of sacred humanness of life is purely constructed ideal of no validity outside the jurisdiction in which it was constructed. Doesn't all this squashy sentimentality about the dignity and the sacredness of human life make you puke? End quote. This is where Wendell Holmes is coming from. There is no future after this life. He believed that we're here by accident. And when you die, you die. That's it. You just rot. So any talk about justice or injustice is just your opinion. That's what he's saying. Why? Because once you decide that there is nothing out there, that ultimate destiny or future is really nothing, that this life is all there is, it affects the way you feel and think about everything. Talk about sacredness of human life. Who says? Who determines that? Why do you have more dignity than a tree or a rock or a dog? Well, we don't know. Well, we just feel this way. We just sense it. But we have nothing to back up that feeling. Oliver Wendell Holmes was simply thinking out the implications of what he believed about the future. Why not? But there's another junior had a different view. This junior had this speech, and it goes, I have a dream. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley will be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And with this faith, we will be able to hew out, out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope. Martin Luther King Jr., different view of the future, made a difference in his present, worked hard. For justice, had every right to, every basis to. This understanding of Christian hope has an influence, not just on how you get through tough times, but on everything, even on things on what you think about justice, injustice, sacredness, dignity of human life. And that's why it's so important. This is why the Apostle Paul in our letter prays, pray that your eyes, the eyes of your heart be enlightened so that you may know what this hope is to which he has called you. 
whether it's to endure your present, whether it's to persevere because of what you know, whether it's to work harder, whether it's to do all that you can, because if you don't do all that you can in light of future hope, that's not Christian hope. That's just wishful thinking. Okay? So how should it affect us? What are some of the impacts I think Christian hope gives us today, right now, in our present, all right? Let me remind you of how this works, okay? I, I quoted him before last week, but I'll do it again. Gerhardus Voss defines faith this way, practically. He says, faith is the organ of apprehension of unseen and future realities, giving access to and contact with another world. Faith is the hand stretched out through vast distance of space and time whereby the Christian draws to himself the things that are far beyond so they become actual to him. Faith takes what is in the future and makes it real here. That's the organ of apprehension. And if you have this hope, if you put your faith in this hope, three things happen in the present. And I'm getting this from Jonathan Edwards, a famous Puritan. Jonathan Edwards his, I think, first sermon was when he was 18 years old, and it's still read and written today, and it's called Christian Happiness. Three things that he says in his sermon that will happen when you have this hope. One, your bad things will turn out for ultimate good. Two, good things can never be taken away from you. And three, the best things are yet to come. Christian hope, future and ultimate, how does it impact the present? Three ways. You understand this. Your bad things will turn out for ultimate good. Your good things can never be taken away from you, and the best things are yet to come. Okay, let's look at these very carefully, a little more practically here. Your bad things will turn out for good. I've got this hope. Bad things now turn out for good. Let's look at Jesus. It didn't really turn out good for him in this world. Let's be honest. He, he suffered. He, he was tortured, injustice to the, to the ultimate, and then even dies. It was pretty bad for Jesus. Now, when the people saw Jesus hanging on a cross, did they say, oh, no, don't worry about it. It's going to be good. No. They didn't understand. They saw a horrible, terrible thing. There was confusion. But it means this. I want you to understand. It means this. Just because you're a Christian, Christian hope does not promise that you'll have a good and easy life. I'm sorry to break it to you. I know that's what some of us might think. Just because you're a Christian, it does not promise that you will have a good and easy life. In fact, I would argue the opposite. If you're a real Christian, you ultimately expect not to have an easy life. Why? Again, look at Jesus. Innocent man, the most innocent man in the world. He gets unjustly punished. He's crucified like a criminal. He's beaten. He's mocked. And then he dies like a thief. If the most innocent and most righteous man in the world had to go through that when he lived here, what makes you think you're going to get out of this world scot-free? Jesus in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know because it's hated me first. John 15, 20, remember the word I said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. No one gets out of this world scot-free, but if you follow this Jesus, you follow a guy who went to the cross before he went to heaven, who went through hell before he got to heaven. And that's why John 16, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Sorry to break it to you. But bad things turn out good. Why? Future hope. Romans 8, 28, that's what he says. Jesus, look at this, suffered, tortured, injustice, even death, and there's so much good out of it. Infinite good. 
infinite good. Did they know it back then? Of course not. But that was the hope. Infinite good out of horrible situation. He endured the worst so he could give you the best. He went through hell to give you heaven. In order to make you his friends, he was a stranger to God. He was abandoned by his father. Why? To make you his child. That's certain hope. It's certain because of what it took for Jesus to make that happen. And that's why in our passage, Paul talks in verse 13, uh, that because you've heard this gospel of salvation and you believe in him, you are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is what? The guarantee of our inheritance. And so Paul says, here's this inheritance. Yes, it's in the future, but you've got a, you've got a guarantee. You've got a down payment of it. You've got a little piece of it, and it's called the Holy Spirit that promises the rest to come. Biblical hope is life-shaping certainty about the future, living now in a way that's different, not just because you know what's going to happen in the future, but because of what you have right now and in the future. And what you have in Jesus Christ can never be taken away. That's the second thing that Edward says. First is, bad things will become good. But second thing, if I have this future hope, good things can never be taken away. Now, let me qualify this, okay? Uh, this is one of my favorite movies. I'm sure many of you here, it's old now. It's called The Shawshank Redemption. Remember? Uh, it's about two men, Andy Dufresne and his, his friend uh, Red. Andy Dufresne played by Tim Robbins. Uh, Red played by Morgan Freeman. And, and Tim Robbins, or Andy, he's unjustly convicted, sentenced to life imprisonment, and he has this friend there named Red, uh, played by Morgan Freeman. And after years and years of prison, Andy makes a promise for himself and for Red, and he tells his friend Red that if he ever gets out from Shawshank, he should go to a certain town, find a certain tree in a certain cornfield, push aside the rocks, uncover a little tin can, and use the money in the can and make it across the border to this little Mexican fishing village. Andy eventually escapes from prison, and then later his friend Red is paroled out of prison and being the good friend that Red is, he remembers what Andy told him. He finds the cornfield, he finds the tree, he finds the rocks and the tin can and the money. And in that can was a letter written by Andy, and it read like this. <clears throat> Red, never forget. Hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And no good thing ever dies. And it's at that moment Red realizes what Andy had said to him earlier. Get busy living or get busy dying. Edward says, good things, if you have future hope, can never be taken away from you. Andy tells Red, no good thing ever dies. <clears throat> You've heard it said before, in this life, you win some, you lose some. But if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we feel like we're always losing. Especially as we get older, we, we feel like we're losing some hair, uh, maybe our teeth, uh, our health. Sometimes we feel like we're losing money, sometimes our job. Sometimes we feel like we're losing relationships, even loved ones. But what's the good things in your life? What are the things that never die? And here in our passage, Paul writes to this church in Ephesus of the things that never die, the hope of the promises that God has guaranteed for us in Jesus Christ, sealed with his Holy Spirit, that last forever with him. Future, eternal hope in the midst of temporary loss. If you have faith in this enduring hope, do you see how it might get you through the moments of what feels like present loss? 
How does Christian hope affect us in the present? Trust, our bad things will turn for good because of hope. But second, our good things, what God has given, can never be taken away, no matter what we lose. And third, Jonathan Edwards says is this, the best is yet to come. If I have hope in the future, hope that God has given to me, the best is yet to come. I think this right now. How bad, no matter how bad the situation is, the best is yet to come. No matter how good your situation is, but the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come, good or bad. Why? Because Christian hope is about ultimate hope, not immediate, ultimate. So it must mean that you know that the best things are yet to come. So what does it mean then for me in the present, especially in my time of loss, in this situation that's really hard, what does that mean to know that the best is yet to come? How do I deal with this? It means patience. 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 The best is yet to come. Bad things turn for good. Good things never taken away. The best things are yet to come. Christian hope ultimate and future, in the present, changes the way you think about the present and the way you approach life here and now. Don't get me wrong. I have not mastered this, okay? In fact, I, I'm, I'm very novice. Anything hard happens to me, anything difficult, it's the last thing I think about, my future hope, right? If, if anything, I'm, I'm a crybaby, I'm whining, I'm complaining, it's difficult. And some of you might feel the same way, like who actually does this? That's why it's important to read because there are people who flesh this out in a real way. Um, if you ever want to get encouraged by someone who has gone through the worst and knows what this hope is about, you should read this biography by Johnny Erickson Tada. It's pronounced Johnny, but she's a woman, right? She's now 73 years old. But Johnny Erickson Tada, if you don't know already, when she was 17, she dived in the Chesapeake Bay, miscalculated the shallowness of the water, fractured her spine, and became quadriplegic instantly. Paralyzed from shoulder down. 17, right? She had just confirmed her faith as a Christian, just become a Christian, and now she's a quadriplegic. You read her autobiography, very real, very honest. Anger, depression, Suicidal thoughts, religious doubts, all over the place. She learns to paint uh, with brush between her teeth, and she sold her artwork. That's how she made a living for a little while. Later on, she wrote books. You look at them, over 40 books now. She started her own organization, Johnny and Friends, which is an advocate for people with handicap and disabilities. She has an amazing story. Listen to what she says. Let me quote to you for just a little bit from one of her, uh, one of her books about her situation, and about people. Quote, Do you know who the truly handicapped people are? They are the ones, and many of them are Christians, who hear the alarm clock go off at 7.30 in the morning, throw back the covers, jump out of bed, take a quick shower, choke down breakfast, zoom out the door. They do this all on automatic pilot, without stopping once to acknowledge their creator, their great God, who gives them life and strength each day. Christian, if you live that way, do you know what James 4 says? God opposes you. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he tells you, take up your cross daily 
and follow the Lord Jesus. And let me read you what she means when she says take up the cross. She says this, quote, I must qualify this last statement. Please know, when I take up my cross every day, I am not talking about my wheelchair. My wheelchair is not my cross to bear. Neither is your cane or walker or your cross. Neither is your dead-end job or your irksome in-laws. Your cross to bear is not your migraine headaches, not your sinus infection, not your stiff joints. This is not your cross to bear. My cross to bear, she says, is not my wheelchair. It's my attitude. It's my attitude. Your cross is your attitude about your dead-end job and your in-laws. Your cross is your attitude about your aches and pains, any complaints and grumblings and disputings and murmurings and anxieties, any worries and resentments, anything that hints of a raging torrent of bitterness. These are all things that God has called me to die to daily. End quote. And she says she does this as she looks for hope in the future. She's been married 13 years. Did you know that? After she became quadriplegic. That's why her last name is Tada. I think her husband's Japanese. And she makes this amazing story about her in the first year of marriage, it was so hard for him, he wanted to divorce. Because every two or three hours when they were sleeping, it was his job to turn her. Because she's sleeping and she can't move, so she needs to be turned. Every two or three hours, she had to turn him. And that was just tip of the iceberg. But what kept them going was the hope. It changes the way you think, the way you engage, the way you deal with the ups and downs of daily life. Okay? So how do I know? How do I know this hope is for me? And if I'm honest, sometimes my faith is so weak. I'm not this person here that I just read to you about. I feel like I have no faith sometimes. How can I say with the psalmist in chapter 56, this I know that God is for me. How can I be sure that this hope is there for me? The quick and dirty answer is this. Stop navel-gazing. You know, your navel, you're always looking at, you're looking at yourself all the time. It's always about me, 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 you know, why I'm doing what I'm not doing. And you need to stop doing that and look up once in a while. Look to Jesus Look at what he's done. Look what he said about you. And start looking that more. Okay? Quick and dirty answer. But here in our passage, I think we have something much more encouraging. In verse 14, it says this. Paul says, We are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, if you look at the Greek, listen carefully. This phrase, this verse can be translated differently. It should be translated that... We have been promised the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until God redeems his possession. Not you require possession, but God redeems his possession. And what he's saying there is this. The inheritance that God is talking about, which is ultimately future, is you. You are his inheritance to the praise of his glory. That's why when you read verse 18, this is where he says, he prays that your hearts, eyes of your hearts are enlightened so that you might know what the hope is to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Read this very carefully. Saints, that doesn't mean good people, okay? It just means people separated for him. 
He wants you to know the riches of his inheritance. What's his inheritance in verse 18? The saints. That word inheritance, glorious riches, it means treasure. Here is the hope in Ephesians 1. You are God's inheritance. When God looks at you, what Paul is saying is this. He feels rich. Rich, glorious, rich inheritance, treasure. That's how God looks at you. That's what Paul is trying to tell this church. When he looks at you, it's treasured. He feels rich. This is how much he values you. This is how I know that God is for me. This is the hope of Ephesians 1. Here it is. God is holy. It means this. If he's holy, he can't sin. You know why that's good news? Because if he can't sin, it means he can't and he won't sin against you. Okay? But what Paul is going is a little step further. He's saying, on the contrary, according to our passage, the sovereign, holy, all-powerful creator God, not just not going to sin against you, but intends to make you his treasure. That's why he sent his son. That's why he died and rose again. That's why he values you. If a God is going to make a plan to make you his treasure, nothing's going to stop him. That's the hope. You're going to be his treasure. You know, those of you, oh, there's only a handful of us, you know what it's like when your kids go to college and they go far away. I, I don't feel this because my kids are so close. In fact, I'm so happy that they left just recently. But, but if they went far away, you know, you lived with a person for like 18 plus years and, and all of a sudden now they're gone. You remember the love, you remember the commitment, you remember the, the, the joy you had of them living with you, but now it's not there. You still love them, you still enjoy them, enjoy them, but when they come back home for vacation, oh, face to face, right? I, don't, I, I did that the first time, but then after that, no more. Uh, you get it? If God values you right now, infinite depth, infinite cause, nothing less than his own son to get you. What do you think he's going to do when he finally sees you face to face? That's the hope. And that's why Paul prays in this world, ups and downs. I pray that the eyes of your heart are enlightened so that you may know what is this hope that he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I pray that the Spirit will illumine this church's eyes to the knowledge of how God thinks of you, to the knowledge of how the Lord regards you and the hope of the promise he has made for you to make you his treasure and to give you not just blessing here and now, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places right now. Ephesians 1, verse 3. I pray that be so. Let's pray. God Almighty, we are thankful that you give us a picture of a God who's not just uh, aloof and, and, and distant and far removed from us, but you also give us a picture of a God who runs to us, draws close to us, wants to be near us. And you've given us great lengths in Jesus Christ to make that happen. We forget that sometimes. 
We are busy and consumed with what's in front of us, in front of our eyes. We are consumed with our work, our families, our, our leisure, uh, our, our agendas, and whatever they might be. And we forget that all along, not only is this life unpredictable and oftentimes unbelievably short, but we forget, Lord, that you are still there and have been there from the very beginning. And you have a plan for us. We pray that you'd help us in the eyes of our hearts to understand the kind of hope you give us. It would grow not just in our heads, but deeper into our souls in such a way, Lord, that we are prepared, that we are equipped not only to live faithfully and diligently, but also to endure, persevere faithfully in the midst of hard and difficult things. We pray we would once in a while look up instead of down. We pray once in a while we would stop asking, what can I do? What did I do? But we would ask, what have you done? What are you doing? We pray for those who feel hopeless in whatever circumstance, in this church, in the world, that you'd help us to live out this Christian hope in the person, the work of Jesus Christ, and the future hope and the ultimate hope that he's given to us, help us to live it out as a testimony to you, to glorify your name, and to give us joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.